0: guest today is a brilliant singer-songwriter who's also known for his work with Stephen Wilson as part of the duo No Man. He has a brand new album coming out this month called "Stupid Things That Mean the World." I'd like to welcome Tim Bonus. Hey Tim, it's Roy.
1: Hi. Hello.
0: So you're sick, huh? Hope you okay <laughs> to talk. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Well, i just did, I did um, an interview with actually in, in Las Vegas. <laughs> Weirdly enough, it's for one of the European. Um, uh, websites, but he's a, he's an Englishman based in Las Vegas, so I just did um, a Skype with him and said that obviously what he was going to get is something potentially quite delirious. So. <laughs> so it, it's probably going to be a bit like sort of, uh, you know, John Anderson's psychedelic dream. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, we'll try and bust through it. So, uh, yeah, let's let's just get going here. The new album has come really quickly after the last one when you took prior to that, like, I, I don't know, like 10 years be- since your other solo album. So what's uh, been sort of the resurgence of, of writing and recording and all that the, the last couple of years?
1: Well, well, I think the first solo album I, I, I never really saw uh, as a solo album. I think I always saw it as a solo album in name, really, because what it was was that um, I was involved in about three or four Projects with musicians, and it was uh, Hugh Hopper, Marcus Reuter, Stephen Bennett, and none of them were coming to anything. So, with My Hotel Year, it was a way of collecting songs um, from half finished projects. Um, And it had a certain consistency and coherence because um, I used the same mixer on everything and I had a certain sonic approach. So, I think it, it just about worked. Um, as an album definitely had an identity but um, it was never really conceived um, as an album um, okay. in itself Abandoned Dental Dreams um, started off as a series of demos that I'd written and co-written and given to Stephen Wilson um, for the basis of a new No Man album and Stephen because of his incredibly busy schedule uh, wasn't able to do it and so he encouraged me to just develop this um, as a solo album, and so, in effect, I think I, I always say that in some ways, abandoned universalsal dreams is is my idea of what a no man album could be it it's it's starts with me, and it ends with me rather than going through the filtering process of no man or any of the other bands I mean so in many ways, it was much more of a solo album than my hotel year had been. Um, And the same with this, really, in that um, whereas I always write my lyrics and melodies um, in terms of the music, um, I I co-write quite a bit, but certainly on the last two albums, um, I've written a lot of the music as well. So, you know, perhaps over half of the music on both of the albums is mine as well as as the lyrics and the melodies. So I've got... um, a lot more personal commitment in terms of uh, production and writing, as well as everything else. And, and I think that if, if Abandoned Dancehall Dreams, in some ways, was my idea of, an, of a no man album um, and was a logical progression from Schoolyard Ghosts, this is something of a logical progression from Abandoned Dancehall Dreams in that it started out with this idea of where can I take this music further. Yeah, um, and so they were very much conceived as albums. And, and and the interesting thing is that, as I say, historically, producing an album, album a year isn't particularly strange. You know, if you think of, of a lot of the old progressive bands, you know, it, I always think of somebody like Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, and I think he had an album a year from 1968 to 1980. And What's astonishing about that is that each album was very different from the preceding one and that they were also touring perhaps for six to eight months of a year. So it's it's not historically that strange that people come up with uh, with an album a year. Um,
0: no, it's more, I- nowadays it's, it's uncommon, but you're right. I mean, even going back to like Genesis in the 70s, their first few albums, I think were a couple or two in the same year or you know, something, which was great. If you love that band, that was a lot more fun.
1: Yeah, you know, and it was an astonishing output, and, and I say even more astonishing that they would be touring so much and that the albums would, would change so dramatically. Um, I mean, for me, interestingly enough, what happened is that um, Abandoned Dental Dreams I'd finished in December 2013, and so for the six months um, prior to it being released, a lot of time was spent on getting the artwork right, promoting it, Perfecting the mixes so in some ways the album was 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 already um, complete and the first half of 2014 um, I was uh, Moving cross-country so so for me it was one of the longest periods. I've had um, not writing music not being um you know, not being able to actually record things because my home studio was in tatters as I was uh, moving across country. Yeah. And it was um, in July of last year that I finally set up the home studio again. And it was about two or three weeks after Abandoned Down Dreams had come out. And um, and it had come out to, you know, some of the most encouraging um, reviews and responses I'd had. And, and there was, you know, quite a nice energy surrounding it. And so I think that um, buoyed by that enthusiasm, um... I started writing again. So so when I started writing for the album, it had been after a period of seven months of actually doing nothing, which for me was like an eternity. Right. Um, and then from about July 2014 to February of this year, I did a lot of writing and also co-writing um, and going through my archive of unreleased songs. So it's quite a sort of um, productive period. And I, and I suppose you, know, you could argue that on one level, Seeing, um, you know, where I could take this music, and partly as well because I'd had seven months of not writing. I'd been building up ideas and building up, you know, probably frustrations and emotions and and whatever else um, find themselves in in the music. And um, and I'd say that about eighty five percent of the uh, the music on the new album um, is. From the last year, so you know, because one of the questions that's often been asked is, is there any overspill from the abandoned Dance All dream sessions? And and there isn't. You know, that eighty-five percent um, of this was was freshly written, and then the pieces that that weren't were from uh, my archive, and they were significantly rewritten for this because because I think that when I started the album project, um, I had an idea of how I wanted it to sound, and What's interesting is that I started with a very specific idea, and I think that that's what I achieved, but during the process of getting to that, there's a lot of trial and error, a lot of hit and miss. So um, I wrote more material than was used, I recorded more material um, than was used, and in some ways, what you, what you always do is you, you start with a certain notion, which hopefully you end with. But in order to get there, you're whittling down because, um, you know, for me, um, album length and album order are as important as writing songs. Sometimes, because I think that I think strong material can um, be destroyed if an album is is over long or doesn't flow.
0: You said there's a there's a progression from the last album to this one, and I think you can hear that, but I'm curious where sort of conceptually and lyrically you see the difference and, you know, what makes this album different compared to the last one? Maybe more lyrically, I guess. I,
1: I think, well, on a musical level, I, I would like to think that what it does is it's playing at the edges of what the previous album was. So, So I think in some ways this is more accessible and more experimental it's more acoustic and more electronic um, it's quieter and it's louder so I think that the the extremes have gently been pushed on this compared to the last album um, lyrically um, it's difficult for me to say I think there is as we, as there was last time a sort of overriding mood and theme and Obviously, uh, with the title and the title track, um, I had this idea of um, you know the tiny, trivial things that actually keep us going as as human beings. The, the, the fact that you know quite often um, we can be attached to ridiculous things that have significant meaning. You know, there's there's often. Um, ways in which we sort of try and ward off fears of mortality, um, yeah. which sounds incredibly serious, of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I find it was, my, you know, my father as an interesting case in point that, you know, this is a guy who's now in his late 70s and, and certainly not in the best of health. But, you know, I often find that he will um, be enthusiastically discussing his... Book collection, or his stamp collection, or a particular film he's seen, and you can see that it's these things that, on, on one level, give his life meaning. On another level, um, they're trying to—you know—they're an escape from the more serious issues that, yeah, you know, that are ongoing. In yeah, his life. I
0: think I think that's with everybody. That's why it's such a, a great album title and so um, relatable. You know, which is which is cool.
1: Well, well, I mean on, on that I mean one, one of the saddest stories relating to sort of a musical obsession was one, one of my best friends, his um, sister had been engaged to be married, and um, the guy was twenty four, this is you know, quite a, a time ago. and um, a couple of weeks before the marriage he'd, he'd felt a certain pain, went to the doctors and found out he had terminal cancer,
2: Ooh.
1: and um, was actually dead within about a week and a half, which was, oh awesome. my God utterly bizarre, but my friend, I always remember his story was that he went to see him and he bought him Peter Gabriel's Sew. And rather than actually concentrating on the fact that he was dying of cancer and probably wouldn't be here within a week's time, he was talking about how much the songs meant to him and how much, um, you know, this was important in his life. And, and I always kind of find that as. Um, as an example, of course, you know, I'm not saying that the music is stupid in any way, but of course, it appears trivial in the face of a right. of death.
2: <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> that's I'm sorry to hear that about about mm. that guy. That's awful. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, the the first track also, The Great Electric Teenage Dream, which has just a really cool line in it that I, that I like, where, where you say, uh, your Great Electric Teenage Dream once a record, now an unpaid stream. So that, that's really powerful. And is that is that sort of a... Is the song about sort of the digital age and, and how you when you're younger you want to be a successful musician, but good luck with that?
1: Well, it, it, it's partly... Um, with that song, it's part of a series of songs I've been writing um, that go under the name of, of Third Monster on the Left. And And what it's about is people making music in, in the digital age that where because obviously music has always changed um as technology has changed and as the formats of delivering music have changed so you know when the lp came in um the likes of frank Sinatra created the concept album uh, when the cd came in um people used that space in certain ways and, and certain sounds were preferred so i think that you know technology in time has always influenced the way in which music has been made and i think that in the 21st century of course where music generally speaking has less value to people um, certainly less monetary uh, value how does that impact on the musicians Um, and so I'd written a series of songs that were about people either in the music industry or on the fringes of the music industry and uh, I sort of saw them as as maybe being uh, you know that maybe even a generation older than I am people are sort of in their 60s and 70s, who are still plying their trade to an aging audience. You know, it's like, what is it like when you're sort of 69, producing your greatest hits um, yeah. to an to an aging audience, um, with your music being given for free? You know, perhaps it's that bizarre thing where, on one level, you're still being treated uh, perhaps like a uh, a god by your devoted audience whereas on another level um you know your your income suffered your lifestyles suffered you maybe are going through the motions of um regurgitating your hits just to make a living and i suppose I was sort of interested in how that affects the psyche of um of a musician and the quality of the work they would make because one of the things i've i believed is that Obviously, any musician wants to reach people. Money is not um, the be-all and end-all. I think that most musicians I know and have worked with, they make music because they want to touch people, they want to reach people. But there's also probably a truth to the fact that when music was a huge money-making concern in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it possibly did produce more innovators because sometimes... Where there's money that's where the great minds of a generation gravitate, right. so you know you could argue that from the nineties onwards, where computer games um, were where the money is, that a lot of great minds were attracted to it and worked within the context of that so you know i I think it was um it's a complex issue, but yes it, it was partly um imagining um, a character who's had some success in another decade um, reflecting on their career reflecting on where they are um, sorry it's a very convoluted
2: and long no answer. yeah
0: I know I, I love approaching this, this subject matter actually and, and, and asking guys like yourself uh, you know what do you think about you know the whole Apple music and, and the streaming and um, you know making it now as an artist is, is a challenge
1: I think it's an incredible challenge. I think that, you know, I'm very fortunate that I actually got into music at a time where it was more valued. And there is also, you know, uh, still um, a generation of music lovers who see that value, of which I'm a part. You know, I still consume and buy music um, on a very, very regular Basis, and, and the interesting thing for me is that, that, that I still love the physical product, that um, um, I love engaging with um, the artwork as well as the music. You know, there's a kind of totality and there's a romance to it that I don't think you get with a download or a stream. Even though I probably listen to my music and have done for a decade or more um, via iPod or via computer, I still buy the physical product. I still connect with the physical product, and you know this could be uh, a generational thing um, but yeah, I think it would be incredibly difficult for for younger musicians to come up and establish themselves um, with an audience and and Although I think on one level, things like Apple music and Spotify are great in the sense that if you want to um, use them to discover music, they're fantastic. Tools, you know, I, I tend to use YouTube for much the same thing as well. Um, you know, for me I tend to use these services as a means of finding out whether I want to buy the the physical product. Right. Um but you know, obviously for a lot of people it's the end in itself. And I, I guess it does mean, you know, ultimately, you know, maybe it's five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, but ultimately it might mean that um, there will be no full-time musicians or there will be very few full-time musicians. And, and you, and of course, what's interesting is that even in the glory days of of record contracts and enormous vinyl and CD sales that perhaps only, you know, 0.1% of musicians ever made a living out of music, you know, maybe now it's going to be 0.1% of the 0.1% that make a living in the future. And um, I'm always reminded of a, of a story that um, Stephen Bennett, tells me. Uh, Of course it could all be in his imagination but he he says that he read a science fiction story from about 10-15 years ago where art has become available for free on the ether and as a result nobody produces anything so all music, all literature all film it's available for nothing and it's on one level constantly available to stream it's Valueless, and it produces um, an era of apathy. You know, which which I really hope you know won't be the case. You know, um, but uh, there are sort of things to ponder on, certainly.
0: Yeah. Um, the The other track that was uh, just released as a lyric video, which is really great um, is a Sing To Me, which is the second track on the album, which comes from an older demo. So what's the story behind that one and how did you come across that demo to decide to do it?
1: Well Stephen um, sent me about three or four No Man demos. This would have been in October 2014. He sent me three or four demos that I'd completely forgotten about because we've been um, putting together a No Man Lost Songs CD, And so he uh, was sending me other pieces for consideration. And um, a couple of them were were very early pieces, including uh, the first thing we ever did together. When we first met Stephen and I, it was, um, I think it was June 1987, believe it or not. You know, Stephen was a teenager and I was just out of my teens. And um, we sat around talking. And then within... An hour we wrote two pieces together, really different pieces. One was this incredibly um, vicious, noisy piece, and another was this very stately, graceful, atmospheric epic. And um, part of these pieces essentially was, in fact, the, um, the first piece we'd ever written together, which was called Screaming Head Eternal, which was, if nothing else, hilarious. Um, and in these demos was uh, a track called Best Boy Electric. And what it consisted of was a minute of this very, very pretty piano line and vocal, um, which was mostly improvised lyrics, and then this absolutely crazed coda in 7-8, where it seems to me like Stephen is actually sitting on the organ. And I'm making death metal growls, you know. <laughs> kind of, um, and bizarrely enough, we did try that um, with Sing to Me, but we decided, I think, fairly sensibly that it didn't work. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought the the melody and the piano um, chord sequence was, was really um, very nice. I didn't know why we'd not developed it. I'd completely forgotten about it. And... Um, so i took that and used it as the basis uh, for sing to me and the only thing that remains from the no man demo other than the the piano chord sequence is the um the line sing to me that's it wow. otherwise you know otherwise it's completely rewritten lyrics a couple of new musical sections um so even that in a way although it sort of dates from 1994 um Really, most of it dates from late 2014, early 2015. Um, And and I think that was one of the things I liked about it, that it sort of, you know, had the air of classic early No Man while also, you know, being quite comfortably tied into what I'm doing with my solo music. Um, So, yes, you know, it was very much rewritten in the sense that I'd only taken the sort of the minute song fragment and and developed the the six-minute sing to me, um, out of it, and and what it was that when Stephen sent it to me, you know, not only was I surprised that we'd not done anything with it, um, I thought that's exactly what I want um, for the stupid things that mean the world album. It was just ideal timing. It was one of those sort of eureka moments that I'd been sort of scrabbling around through the archive and writing new material, and that came at just the right time
0: yeah, that's a song that that really has stuck with me uh, initially in listening to the album. I, I just love it. Um, have you sent him did you send him the the final version kind of in the middle of the process there and and uh, did he have anything to say about it?
1: Well, I sent him um, the album when it was finished. Um, and yeah, he was didn't necessarily talk about that song, but was was really positive um, about the album. I mean we're in regular contact still. And, um, you know, we often discuss anything from, you know, what No Man Archive project we'll be working on to what music we're listening to to the things we're personally doing musically. And, um, and yeah, he was very encouraging. I sent him some of the early mixes of the album when it was finished and um, he gave some, you know, really uh, decent advice. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say he's been... Uh, positive and, and, and that's good because you know, he tends to be positive when he means it rather than for the sake of
0: it. Well listen man I, I look I love the album I'm a big fan of what you do and, and that this whole kind of style of music so uh, thank you for, for taking a few minutes and, and talking and I want to wish you the best with the album and I hope we speak again soon.
1: Adieu. All right, see you.
0: Bye. We're going to close with a track off of the new Tim Bonus album Stupid Things That Mean The World. This is the track Sing To Me. For more information and upcoming interviews, please check theprogreport.com, follow us on Facebook, at The Prog Report on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks. The bridge over the traffic
2: Conversations after dark Endless walks Roads to nowhere Moonlit faces In closed parks To me, she said, sing to me, she said, you were dreamers on the sidelines. On the sidelines Sing to me, she said Sing to me, she said Seeking magic in somebody else's world